Hello everyone, welcome to the Melting Pot podcast. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is as a result of my hunger for optimizing business performance, scaling up organizations, corporate culture, customer addiction, building high-performing teams, along with a few other obsessions along the way. I've spent the last several years working for and with some of the most successful top-performing companies in the world. And this podcast is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a high-quality business and live a more fulfilling life. If you enjoy the podcast, you can find more information on today's episode and other topics at dominicmonkhouse.com. Today, I'm talking to another tech founder who has a real passion for his subject. And from it, we tease a number of things which are more, I don't know, broadly applicable to the rest of the rest of us growing businesses, I guess. Matt Johnson is the CEO at Bear Conductivity. And he did, a, he did an undergraduate degree in economics and then he did industrial design at Imperial College and also did a, a master's at the Royal College of Art. And out of a sort of university project came this passionate belief that he could do something, that he could create a business that could do something with Conductive Inc. And now he's created the world's largest community of 350,000 people based on Conductive Inc. and a processing unit that he and his team have developed. And now they're going through a, a fascinating process of whittling down from 55 today to three, tomorrow in the short term, in the future, down to one project to put the whole business behind. It's, you know, sort of Jim Collins, bullets and cannonballs. It's Moore's crossing the chasm, E-Myth. All of these things have come together in Matt's business, which he talks very cogently about. A great, enthusiastic interviewee. I really enjoyed chatting to him, super enthusiastic, and some great sort of reflections at the end in terms of where he, you know, what did he, what does he now know that he wish he'd known then, and and some great book recommendations, one of which certainly I haven't read before, but have just, have just purchased having interviewed him. So I really enjoyed chatting to Matt. I hope you enjoyed listening. Enjoy. So I'm Matt. I'm CEO and co-founder of Bear Conductive. Uh, Bear Conductive is a printed electronics company. We sell development kits directly to a community, and we license the technology to big customers like IKEA and Dupont. And I can happy to geek out at any level with you today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for coming on. Um, what do people like IKEA and Dupont do with your your ink? First, I should say I will say that we're about more than just ink. Okay. And I can explain that in a moment. But really, IKEA and DuPont, like a lot of big companies, are desperate to figure out how to translate traditional physical products like chairs and tables into products that have some sort of digital life. So for IKEA, it's about building controls for smart lighting products. Uh-huh. Well, IKEA recently announced our collaboration in Bloomberg, and they said exactly what we're doing, which is you touch the tabletop and it controls a smart light like a remote control. Aha, uh-huh. and you never lose it down the back of the sofa. Yeah, well, and, and it's about, philosophically, it's about blending intelligence into the environment, and we see that as a mega trend. And that lots of companies that are selling traditional things like building materials and furniture are interested in attaching them to the digital world through physical interactions. 
Okay, so maybe we should go back to the beginning and say, <laughs> with that with that end in mind, where did where did you start? So we started as a company, and this will also explain the second part of your your question about why we're more than just ink. We started as a company after graduating from the Royal College of Art and Imperial College. So we studied a program that was then called Industrial Design Engineering, and that was the very beginning of the business we were working on a unique material formulation. So we made a conductive ink and we made that material. You can do some really interesting stuff with it. It's effectively like a paintable wire. Uh Apply it to a surface, when it's dry, it can conduct electricity. That alone gets lots of people really excited because it's incredibly cool. But if we're honest, it's not truly innovative because that industry of conductive inks and conductive paints is actually quite mature. The innovative part was our take on it, was giving it to individuals, individual engineers, individual designers. And that's what's developed the world's largest printed electronics community, which is oriented around our development kits. And they opened doors for us with people like Ikea and DuPont. Because you've got the kit, what's the kit based on? Is it open source or proprietary? Or We do use some open source tech in the kits, but it's, I would say, I haven't done an analysis of it, it's probably majority proprietary. Okay. But the purpose of the kit is empowering people with technology. Early on in the company, we wanted to be prototyping with the most contemporary smart materials. We wanted inks from, say, DuPont, because they have some incredible materials. We couldn't get them. Like, literally, we just couldn't get a 50 mil sample to play with to see if maybe we can build this into a thing. What we realized is that there are some industries where the technology is so inaccessible People can't even can't even prototype with it. By opening it up, we've sold now 350,000 development kits to engineers and designers all over the world. And guess what? That like long tail of people tend to work at really big companies. And that's the door opener for us. And it's not just because DuPont has no mechanism for dealing with small companies. Is it just is it just like oh because it's a secret? No, it's long tail versus <laughs> short tail. So it's like essentially you have DuPont, like all big companies, is very interested in serving the largest customers because that makes the most sense. If you're going to sell a lot of stuff to one person, you should give them great service, right? But what I think is not recognized generally in the industry is that you can generate a huge amount of interest and revenue from the technology by selling it to a lot of individuals who seem to have very individualistic or kind of specific use cases. But as a group, they become powerful because of the internet. And the example for this is that if you Google terms like conductive ink and conductive paint, bare conductive comes up before any of the global leaders like 3M, DuPont, Henkel, Sun Chemicals. And so under Google's terminology, we are the global authority on this (laughs) multi-billion pound industry. And I think that's the most interesting story about our company is recognizing that by building a community of people who are really excited, we can leverage that to do more and more with the technology to create bigger relationships. And so what if, what are some of the amazing things that the 350,000 people have, have done? I mean, I guess they've done stuff that you just would never even have thought about. That's exactly the point. I think that you know our story, putting this in an entrepreneurial perspective, you know, our story is about creating a technology and then trying to figure out where that technology has the most value, 
But that's fundamentally, I believe, somewhat impossible. If we're an expert about the technology, it's very hard for us to be an expert about the application. You know, maybe our killer app is within some sort of obscure medical device, but I wouldn't know that. You might know that because you're an engineer working in that field and you think, oh, if only I had a conductive ink with these properties, I would be able to revolutionize this thing. How would I know? I wouldn't know. I know all about the material science. And so what we realized is that that community does exactly things that we don't expect. And that's the value is they tell us, they say, hey, I tried um, electroplating. Hey, I built a giant interactive wall. I made a retail display that lights up when you touch it. And all of those are these tiny little MVPs that we don't have to build. And, you know, it's not purely transactional. It's also really exciting for us, right? It's, it's great fun and it's very satisfying. But in terms of the craziest stuff that people have done, we've had super high tech things where people have used our materials for shielding for radiation experiments, the National Physics Lab, which is amazing to know that somebody with that level of sophistication is, is evaluating our materials. We've had really ambitious large-scale installations where there are murals where you touch the material and it plays sounds or controls lights. And then we just had lots of people who do really deeply personal projects that are super satisfying for them, like frankly making light up clothes for their pets. (laughs) And I think the thing that big companies don't get is that if you want the sophisticated person for the National Physics Lab using the materials, you also have to be excited about selling it to the person who's going to make a light-up hat for their dog. Yeah, because otherwise you don't have the community. Yep. It's the breadth that gives it the value. And you have to have the customer service and attitude to go, I, of course, Dominic, I'll help you with this project for your pet iguana. But then what I often find is like, oh, Dominic's an engineer at a major aerospace manufacturer. Okay, interesting. Well, you know what? As you were talking about it, Back in the day when I was at Rackspace and we were, we were changing the way people were hosting websites online, we had exactly that. Somebody was taking something from us and they're spending a couple of hundred dollars a month and yet they were the sysadmin inside a massive company, which is how we ended up inside that company. And then, you know, that's how AWS grew. They said, look, our community is the developers. It's not the IT guy. We're going to bypass the IT guy. And so, you know, they, in the end, disenfranchised rack space and, and, and competitors. It's just fascinating, isn't it? Mm, but I think that there's a really practical side to it, which is that, so we have a great collaboration with Ikea and really enjoy working with our colleagues there. And it wasn't until maybe three or four meetings in that we found out that one of the engineers we worked closely with had already bought our products before I had even pitched Ikea. And so he had our products sitting in his you know, workshop at home and he thought they were really cool. And he thought we were a nice company. We had responded to his emails. The products technically worked really well. And what it meant was that then effectively his boss can look at him and go, huh, well, if my engineer who I respect thinks these guys are legit, yeah, that's a good sign. Yeah. So it's about developing advocacy. And from a business perspective, you know, we're selling these development kits. So it's also great cash flow for us. And so where... Where has not worked? Where have you ended up? Where, where's it, where have you gone? Where have you gone and come back from? Where, where do you think it's going now? So I think the challenge with this is that though I'm saying it's great that the community is so, has such breadth, as you put it, it can also be hard to understand as a contiguous whole because it's not a contiguous whole. And so we have 
built kits that focus and, and built marketing that focuses on subsections of the market that have run dry really quickly, or we've realized have taken us in areas that we didn't want to go in. So a great example of that is education. We get so many teachers who email us and say, this is a great way to teach about electronics or teach electronics because it's, it's so visceral. You know, it's a paint. You can paint it. You can print it. It's so interactive and it engages a huge variety of students. But what we recognized was to serve the education market, you have to be totally focused on it because of the kind of requirement to make products that have curriculum around them and are really age focused and appropriate, but also the procurement process in education means that your whole supply chain has to be focused on that. And we kind of had one foot in the professional engineer dev kit and one foot in the education market for far too long. And it was only when we took our self out of education that we really started to accelerate. And that was the learning that like, though we're not a hundred percent sure who the final customer is, we realize there's two groups and we have to pick one at this point. You have to focus. Yeah. Why not education? Did, is it, does it come down to personal excitement? Uh, yeah, I think there's like some aspect of what do you want to do every day. I was a kindergarten teacher. It's just as satisfying to, to screw around you know, with the technology alongside a kid as it is to screw around with technology alongside an engineer, you know, a professional adult engineer. It's, it's the same feeling. But I think... What we recognized was that it was really simple, actually, that within ed tech, so education tech, there are tons of competing products and there's a thriving market there, which is good, which means there must be there must be something there that we could grab. But strategically, if our proposition was we're only going to sell things that are based around this single material technology, we risk running out of ideas pretty quick. So here's a conductive paint project to do this type of learning or this type or this type. But when we looked at other markets, we realized if we can increase the ability of the technology to work in automotive, smart buildings, healthcare's wearable, healthcare wearables, there's this huge breadth of technical applications that we could find and lots of ways of accessing the market. And so it just seemed like there was way more opportunity in that space. Yeah. And in fact... Problems that you don't even know you haven't not solved yet. Just. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, but that's the, so getting all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, we started with the ink, but the ink itself is just an enabling material in right now. Our real value is the fact that we know how to print that material and connect it with a circuit board. So a piece of electronic hardware, which runs our firmware and turn that printed pad into a very high resolution sensor. And there are only a limited number of technical things you can do with, with conductive inks and printed sensors is, is one of the big buckets. And, you know, we've really focused on that and essentially it then gives us the ability to serve a couple of different really specific applications in maybe three markets. And so we're, we're kind of chunking it down into smaller and smaller pieces while developing the focus that allows us to get more value out of those relationships. Is there something at the minute where you're at the beginning of a journey and you don't, you don't know how you're going to get there, but, and so what, what's one of those applications? We have three applications that we're looking at that our ink printed as a sensor works great for. We have a water leak application. So we're great at detecting small amounts of water. So you can print that ink as a piece of paper and you can then apply that to a huge area. 
that can be the form of like a tape. It can be the form of um, a big printed pad and it can detect an extremely small amount of water. The advantage is we can do this at really low cost, cover a big area. Mm-hmm. The other application set that we have, which is interesting is occupancy sensing. So we're good at detecting people. We can detect through other materials. So we've been experimenting with customers with placing these printed pads underneath the carpet, underneath flooring materials and detecting where someone moves in a space. And then the last is what we're doing with Ikea, which is interfaces. So that's actually creating effectively a printed button that can go in lots of different circumstances. And we will not build a great company by doing all three of those. And we know that there's one of those will win, but our strategy is using customers to help us understand where the value, the technology has most value. And so if we talk again in six months, for sure, I'll be down to two or maybe I'll be down to one. We have this advantage that we have enough inbounds because of the community that we're able to say to customers, you should pay us to run a a large scale test and let's really evaluate this. Yeah. Has it got legs? Yeah. What will people really pay for it? Does it really work? You know, in the end, technology, developing technology into new applications often falls because of the, the smallest details, you know, oh, the person who's installing this would never carry the tools required to install it. Or you're trying to take advantage of, you know, simple things like that, right? You're trying to take advantage of a piece of infrastructure, but legally you don't have access to something about that infrastructure. So you can't do that. Of these three things, they all come from the community. Yeah. So one of the big things that we did in the last maybe year was made a very complete list of, every application that had come from the community and that we had thought of, obviously we have plenty of ideas ourselves. And essentially that list is what are the best applications for a large scale printed sensor and how can we value them? And so we've built a model that says occupancy sensing, what else exists in the market? What's the size of that market? What do the competitors look like? You know, what kind of margins are they getting? What business models are they using? And out of that, we try to, as objectively as possible, analyze which one of those applications is the most compelling. And so what's interesting is out of 54, I think, something like that, we come down to three pretty quickly. Uh It's easy to cross off about 30. We have some specific healthcare applications, which are instinctually compelling. But when you actually investigate who would pay for it, it's not immediately clear. And so then you realize we could solve the problem, but there might not be a customer. So you cross those out. And then there's others, which a bit like the water leaks are not the most viscerally exciting. But when you look at it, water leaks are 40% of insurance claims in the US, home insurance claims in the US. So it's a huge, huge problem. And for a lot of technical reasons, there there are a lack of solutions. Uh Who would your customer be there? Is that that another, is that not another one where you go, Who's the customer? Insurance company is going to save money, but... Well, so our customer, our approach is using channel partners to get to the end customer, right? So we're not making a smart table for you. We're working with Ikea to make a smart table. And then hopefully you'll go to Ikea and go, hey, this is a great table. I need this. The same would be true for water leak sensors. And right now, the biggest interest we get is from insurance companies. Ah, okay. There's two reasons for that. Insurance companies are either insuring large public or 
you know, semi-public private spaces, and they want to mitigate their risk by installing sensors, which can essentially warn them, hey, there's a leak, there's a flood, we got to fix this right away. You know, that helps them avoid paying out when they don't have to. And then the other set of customers underneath that is homeowners. So we see that insurance companies, and especially in the U.S., are offering smart devices as part of like an insurance rebate program to essentially lower the risk. We're gonna give you a device, you install it, we'll give you a certain discount on your insurance, but you've, by installing that device, have dramatically lowered your risk. Yeah, because you wanna know that it's not that there's a leak, it's that it's a long-term in sort of insidious, and, and at the very least, people with second homes who aren't there to see or feel or smell it. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting space because the second homes thing especially if in a place which experiences freeze-thaw cycles. Second homes are notorious for having a, a terrible leak because no one's there for two or three weeks and the whole thing floods, right? Yeah. But the rise of companies like Airbnb means that insurance companies are also having to really change the way that they insure properties because the kind of unknown quantity of occupants and the unknown nature of occupants means that insurance companies don't know how to profile your risk if that second home is also an, an, an Airbnb rental. Yeah, we think there's a lot to be done with insurance companies. It's so interesting because I often work with clients who have got a business and they're trying to grow faster. And the problem that they've got is, is I go in and I say, who's your core customer? And they go, well, and they're not really sure. And then I say, and what is their need? And they go, well, we're not really sure. They've just organically got to where they want to get to. And now they're trying to focus in. And you're completely different. You've got nothing and you're going on a blank sheet of paper. Who is our core customer? What's the market? You know, being having to be very, very analytical because you don't, almost easier because you don't already have a competing revenue stream to pull you off track. Yes, I certainly think that's true. I think that our big challenge is being rigorous about continuing our plan that we began with that big application model. So we said, let's build this model of all these applications. Okay, 54. We can't do 54 things, obviously. So how do we start cutting this out? Okay, we cut them out. We got down. I forget how many stages. We're, now we're down to three. And I have a good guess about the next one that's going to fall off. And so we have to have the rigor to keep pushing through that. And the challenge becomes when, if I think that application A probably not the best idea, but somebody comes along and says, hey, we'd love to give you a bunch of money to run a trial. We have to have the rigor to say, you know what? We actually don't think that's a winner for us. That money in the next six months isn't going to compensate us for the opportunity cost of focusing on the better thing. That's really hard, especially <laughs> with limited external funding. It's very, you know, we, we believe in running a really lean business that we control. It's very challenging to do that. When did you start? And so we started the company uh, selling the actual jar of paint way back in 2011, late 2011. But it's really in the last 18 months, yeah, I think it was 18 months ago, where we said, right, how do we take this core expertise in printed electronics and focus it on a single technical application? So that was the moment when we said, let's see if we can get big businesses interested. And they are. And is that how much of serendipity, focus, are you where you thought you were going to be when you started? Or is the business like totally different? I think we probably are in a space that we thought we would be in. But I think that I couldn't have predicted the route by which we got here. I think the beginning of the business was extremely organic. 
probably in a way that you you were just describing about other businesses that you work with, which is it's extraordinarily reactive to the market. And so we were selling this smart material and people were saying, hey, we should take this to the classroom. And we said, okay, sure, let's see what happens. And that was really fun. And the growth that we saw there was extreme because it was going to all these different places because we were growing a number of markets at the same time. But then we hit a kind of middle period where without delivering value to any one of those or without investing the effort to deliver value, they kind of just stop growing. Right, yeah. because the teachers say, hey, we need lots of curriculum. And the professional engineers say, hey, we need lots of technical data sheets and really complicated tutorials. And we're going, oh, which one of these things do we do? And so I think then we went into, a, you know, frankly, went into kind of a middle period of the business, you know, a second stage, which was experimenting whether we could do all of these things at once and then recognizing, no, we can't. And then having a kind of crisis of how do we pick? Well, I was, it, it's it, what you were describing there. I think is what Jeffrey Moore calls crossing the chasm. You've got those you've got those early adopters who will take it and run with it, and then you just hit against the people who go unless you give me this next the next thing. And then when you were talking about education not being a big enough revenue opportunity, it's like oh, actually now we can see the the peak here, and it's not exciting enough. It's not our ambition is bigger than this. Yeah. Exactly. I think, you know, it's funny. Um, I hadn't thought about it as crossing the chasm, but I realized in a TED talk that I gave or TEDx talk that I gave in like 2014, maybe I talked about the fact that we might be soon crossing the chasm. I'm now going to go and re-listen because <laughs> I really agreed with that sentiment, you know, that, yeah, it's actually pretty easy at the very beginning because everyone's just excited and there's very few critics. Yeah. Like, yeah, cool. That sounds great. But, you know, when you start benchmarking against competitors, which is definitely the space that we're in now, it's much harder. But on the other side, the value is also better defined. Yeah. You know, so you can say, hey, these guys are making this much money. We can do exactly the same or better because what we're doing can beat them on these three points. You have the competition, but it's combined with the clarity. Right. Yeah, well, and, and I do a process with clients like that called attribution mapping, where we do exactly that. What are the attributes that we've got that we're great at? What's the market? Back to that core customer, what is the core customer value? And so, you know, it's fantastic to talk to somebody who's, who's sort of done that without, you know, he's, he's done it almost as an academic exercise to build a business as opposed to course correct and to pull some clarity out of the, the mess they've got themselves into. That's my background is uh, studying e uh, economics in undergraduate. Uh -huh. That I never wanted to be an economist, but I always loved the aspect of building a model and then testing it against instinct and reality. So this, this merge of qualitative and quantitative information, you know, it's like you have to have the confidence that you're not picking something out of thin air, the recognition that you're never going to get the right answer. There's just, there's no way you're not going to get it. So to me, that's the hardest thing about being an entrepreneur is, is where your confidence level exists. And especially the more people you bring onto the team, you're making decisions that impact a bigger group and your confidence interval has to go up. I mean, what you just said is it's not the plan that's important, it's the planning. But I've got, I've got another question which you might not want to answer, which is, you know, you've got, you're down to three and you said earlier, that one just wasn't viscerally exciting. And, and then you sort of said, so would you, will you end up backing a project which you are not, emotionally excited about? Yes, of course. <laughs>
but not because um, we think it will be profitable. I mean, we obviously, that has to be, that's a box that we have to tick, right? It has to be a profitable thing for us to do. We back things that aren't initially exciting because we now have the experience that there are a bunch of industries that we've engaged with, which become deeply, deeply interesting once you engage with the complexity of it. Okay. And I think it's the recognition that this is also a cultural thing we build into the business, which is people who find anything interesting at the right, you know, with sufficient depth. And whether it's learning about the way that Ikea processes bamboo and turns it into furniture, which is just absolutely fascinating. (laughs) So amazing. Or like we've worked with pest control companies and learning about pest control, um, learning about how do water leaks actually occur? Why is water leaks still a problem? Haven't we fixed this? You know, all of these things at the face seem like really boring dinner party conversation. But when you engage with the best people in the field about it, it's always amazing. So do you foresee the challenge that you might have, which is years ago, I used to work in retail and I used to work at M&S. We had teams of people who opened, found stores and opened them and then ran them for three months and then gave them to the people who ran them for the next 15, 20 years. Once you've solved your, once say water leaks and you've got a product and you're into business as usual, like you've built this entire team that doesn't do business as usual. It does asteroid mining in deep space. That'll be interesting. Let's go solve that problem or bamboo. The excitement levels are high. Are we going to get uh, distracted or, or not commit to the kind of long middle of running a, a business? Is it just going to be boring as shit and you want to go solve another problem? But I would say that's why we have this channel partner strategy. What IKEA does is incredibly interesting. But you know, I would not, I would never ever claim that we would be any better at actually making all these tables. Ah, uh, okay. So, so that you fix the difficult problem for them. They go out and do the distribution and the volume. That makes you money, and then they're also excited about then solving the next problem and the next problem. And you're just iterating with them. Okay. Very much have this attitude of the easiest person to sell to is somebody you've already sold to. And we don't take a cynical view on that. It's that we build a great relationship. You know, we have a couple dozen amazing relationships with big companies and we invest heavily in those and they deliver by wanting to do more and more with us. And because of that, they take care of the volume side. So the model that we pursue with them is, is a licensing model. So they pay us for a typically a trial, a proof of concept, a pilot, you know, whatever the, the verbiage is around that to confirm that there is something interesting to be done. And then we typically then build a prototype and then license the tech or enter a supply relationship with them. And you know, they will always take the majority of profit from that because they're the ones who are doing all that tough work to run the store for the next 15 years. Yeah. But the, their customer benefits from whatever we've added into it. Okay. Is there anywhere you haven't been able to make the technology work that's a disappointment? Uh, that's a disappointment. So there are certainly lots of places that technology won't work because like any sensor technology, it has limitations. We're doing a type of sensing called capacitive sensing. So we can only detect things that are electrically conductive in general. We're not very good at detecting certain plastics. Um, so there's some technical limitations there. Is there anything that's a disappointment? That's an interesting question. Because I think because of my kind of econometric attitude towards it, I don't view it in terms of excitement or lack of excitement. <laughs> was, there, was there something where somebody said, this would be great if, and then it just you just couldn't make it work? 
the reason that I'm inclined to say no is because as part of building that list of applications, we've developed a really effective organizational filtering function. So the people who are here every day are really good at understanding what is a viable, like technically feasible application and then kind of sniffing out whether there's a commercial opportunity. Yeah. So as an example, a couple of weeks ago, we got a phone call on a Friday afternoon, totally unsolicited phone call from someone from a tier one automotive supplier. And I could tell my colleague was looking at me and he, you know, and she was talking this through and it was a totally cold call lead and he had Googled Conductive Inc. and found us. And she had just the right instinct to not screen that call, to say, okay, asked him a few questions and said, why don't you talk to my colleague, Matt? And then, you know, put the phone on mute, gave me like the 30-second thing. And now we're going to visit them in a couple of weeks. Oh, right. Fab. That's kind of the converse of what you asked. But I think we're getting pretty good at saying, cool idea, not going to work. Yeah. You know, and so there's never a chance to get excited. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're so, it's so quick, but I'll think about that. Matt, there's two questions that I ask everyone I managed to persuade to come on and talk to me. Knowing what you know now, if you were to take yourself back in time, is there something you know now that you wish you'd known then? I think that there was a period where I didn't have the confidence in the genuine organic nature of the company. I think in the face of lots of companies that do a great job post-rationalizing their growth, you know, we made these few decisions and everything just worked out amazing. That's a narrative that gets sold. I think I felt like, oh, have we done something wrong because we're going through an exploratory process? I think if I was going to go back in time, I would tell myself there is always space for that kind of open development. You can't let it dominate your business. You have to be strategic, but don't feel bad that that you're exploring. That's literally how you learn. Yeah. And you mentioned before we started recording that you're, you were a small bit of angel, but other than that, you've been self-sustained. And is that, do, do you think that has meant you haven't had to go down a particular route? And then when you've changed, when you've changed direction, it hasn't been a catastrophe. Yes. I think that that's exactly what it is, is that we, you know, with the challenges that come with a limited amount of funding, right, and self-funding, there are certainly challenges associated with that. Um, there are also challenges associated with, with venture funding. The challenge that we took on with that, which is feeling the pressures of cash flow every day, the reward that we've purchased is the freedom to take our time and be super precise about where we want to go. We're both super precise and exploratory. I think what I see from other businesses is that sometimes they take money too early. They aim at something which might not actually be the right place to aim and they absolutely go for it. But that's because the nature of the funding relationship is often that it behooves the major investor to find out as quickly as possible if it's worth it, even if that means significantly injuring or destroying the business. We like the idea that we've taken a lot of shots and we've taken a lot of time to aim and kind of walk forward and think we're in, in a really good area, at which point then institutional funding is really valuable because as soon as you know where you're going, as soon as you created that essentially profit machine, that's a great thing. Boom. The other question I ask is, if there are any books that you have read that have made a difference to you that you think others could get value from? So, okay, there's two, there's two books. And the first is one, okay, actually, I'll do the second one first. And then I'll tell you about my favorite, probably my favorite book, which I often abuse people with at dinner parties. 
You absolutely have to read this book. It's the best thing ever. The first book that I would really suggest is The E-Myth, and the author is Michael Gerber, G-E-R-B-E-R. So it is, sorry, Michael, it's very cheesy. (laughs) I don't know Michael Gerber, but it's very, very cheesy. But the thing that I love about The E-Myth is that it makes sense in terms of a narrative of how small businesses sometimes fall into a trap. So you get people who, I think he talks about the, creator and the manager. I forget what the archetypes are, but you know, he basically says, look, if you're running a bakery and you love making cakes, don't go and hire other bakers, hire somebody to run the the bakery and you should make the cakes. And, you know, we've all read it as a business, or at least we try to get people to engage with it to say, honestly, where do you see yourself fitting? It's okay. You know, not everyone needs to aspire to something huge. Like you should aspire to what you like. And so that's a great book. The other one is Skunk Works. So this is my like super favorite book. Skunk Works by Ben Rich and Leo Janos. Skunk Works is the story of the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works program, which developed uh, a number of stealth aircraft, but probably most famously the stealth fighter, which is a very triangular looking aircraft that was, I think, first publicly seen in the late 80s. But essentially the, the reason it's so inspirational is there were, I think, 30 people who took some academic papers, turned them into aircraft that were able to defeat radar and produce incredibly successful technology with, at least in, in aviation terms, very little funding and, and very little external structure. And it's, it's just, it's just it's cool. It's like you read it and you think, I want to be there. <laughs> it's amazing because of the technology, but it's also amazing because of the way that they discuss collab- this cross-collaboration yeah it's a wonderful story yeah that's i haven't read that i will put that on my list and go and buy that i'll go and buy that now uh, matt it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you thank you very much indeed for giving me your time well thank you for your time i really appreciate it all this information and more can be found at dominicmonkhouse.com forward slash podcast there you'll find show notes additional reading and links related to this episode. You can also find my blog and the past editions of the Melting Pot newsletter. The simplest thing to do is to sign up to my subjectively, not crap, once a week newsletter, where I'll update you on what I've been up to, the most interesting articles I've read, and all things relating to scaling up, high-performing teams, net promoter score, company culture, etc. Social, you can find me on Twitter, at Dom Monkhouse and LinkedIn at Dominic Monkhouse. LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach me and share your questions and comments. Thanks for listening.